last week we took a brief hiatus from uh, our sermon series on Isaiah. And last week, Weston taught on um, fasting as we entered this 40 days of fast this past week. Um, And so I hope that time uh, last week was enriching for you just as it was for me, especially as we enter into the fast. And so I pray that today and our hope for today is that we come to celebrate and feast on God this morning. That we come and are desire, our uh, want is for God only and for Jesus only. And so praying that we just feast on his word today, praying that we just dive deep and we get more of God today and our, our affection is fully on him this week. And so we pick right back up in Isaiah this week and specifically chapter 28. So if you would just go ahead in the, the book or in your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to chapter 28. And so far in Isaiah, we've seen in uh, chapters 1 through 12, God declares his redemptive purposes for his covenant people. And then we entered into chapter 13 through 27, and we saw his redemptive purposes for the nations. And so now that we enter chapter 28, and it actually goes through 33, we're going to see that he affirms the power he has to fulfill his promises to us. And so that's what we're really going to focus today on, is that he affirms this power that he has To fulfill his promises to us. And so we're going to read in chapter 28. We're actually going to read the entire chapter. So here we go. Follow with me in verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty. Which is on the head of its rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong. Like a storm of hail and destroying tempests. Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and the strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate." These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom he will teach knowledge and to whom he will explain the message. Those who are weaned from the milk, those who are taken from the breast. For it is the precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips, and it will be a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little that they may go and fall backward and be broken, ensnared and taken. Therefore, hear the, word, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. With the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line, 
and the righteous the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Uh, will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. From morning by morning, it will pass through, by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as Mount Perizim, in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to his deed, to do his deed. Strange is his deed and to work his work, alien in his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bounds be made, bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts again, the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he, does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, soak human, and put in wheat and rose and barley in his proper place, and emirate the, as, as the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshing with a threshing sled, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But, still is, but dill is beaten without, with a stick, and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it, with the horse, he does not crush it. This also comes through the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, God, we just pray that we would, uh, God, just see the beauty in your word. That, God, we would hear from you this morning that we have begun our fast and that we would just thirst for more of you. That we would soak up the rich truth that you have for us today. And apply it to our lives so that we can see who you are in a more real way today. In your name we pray. Amen. So what does this passage mean? What is this passage trying to say? Because there's a lot going on here. And so it can get kind of confusing. confusing. But if we really boiled it down to two words, it's trust me. And what's pretty crazy is this morning our Sunday school lesson was on the exact same thing. Trust me. And so I... I think it's not a coincidence that we get to hear that message twice today. Uh, maybe it was better in Sunday school than it will be now, but hopefully you can still find something in here. But basically God is saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to find that I am trustworthy. And so that, is, that seems pretty simple, right? That we should just trust God. But not so for us. Not so. We trust in others. We often trust in our resources, our jobs, our relationships. We form idols daily. Um, and so we pursue the world in the temporary instead of pursuing God and the eternal. And so if you're sitting here and you're like, man, he's like, that's me. I'm, he's directly speaking to me. And you're like, man, I'm probably alone in this room. Don't feel that way. Everybody in this room struggles with this very thought, with this very thing. Everybody struggles with the pursuits of this world. And so they often ensnare us. And this is a struggle that we have. And they can, t- they can hold us in bondage. But God here is saying, trust me. And when we trust God, we gain freedom. I think about Galatians 5.1 when that comes to mind. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And so we don't have to be in bondage when we trust God, when we trust in Christ. When we do that, we actually gain freedom. Um, and so that is what we're hopefully going to see this. And so if we take that, if we continue on that thought, if we all live by faith, it's actually us stepping out of our ways. 
And we actually are stepping in to God's adventures, which is not easy for us because we are a sinful people. Not only are we a sinful people, but we live amongst a world that's not going to tell us, trust God for everything. God can supply your every need. When we think about it, that is anti-world. That would be pushing against what the world is telling us. And if you think about it, your prayer life for a minute. How many times are you praying for something? And specifically praying for something. A healing. uh, A new job. uh, Whatever it is. We pray for something specific. And at the end we say, Lord, not my will, but your will. And hear me. That is the exact posture I would love for each one of us to take in this room and truly mean it. But how many times do we do it as a defense mechanism to say, you know, if... This doesn't work. I'm not going to be let down by God. Amen. But, in, but in reality, we're saying, God, you're letting me down. And so we do that so often in our prayer lives. And so we see this playing out in our lives daily. And so in essence, we're saying, God, you're a risk. For me to fully put my trust in you, it's a risk. And so that is not what God wants to see, this, see in this passage. And, and when we do that, we often just say, what's happened in the past? What's you know, behind me? Or what's that? That's what I'm going to trust in. That's what I'm going to ride in. And so when we take steps forward, instead of pressing on and I'm trusting God, we look back and we say, the past is better. The past is what I want. And that's where my confidence is. But instead, God calls us to trust and confidence in Him. Trusting in Him is when we fully experience Him in His fullness. And so the question for us today is, do we feel safe and do we feel rich in God alone? Do we trust him with everything? Everyone asks this question themselves. And everyone also answers this question by how you live and by how you pray. And so that's kind of this theme that we're going to see from chapters 28 to 33. Trust God. He has the power to fulfill his promises. And so he's looking us in the eye this morning and throughout to 33. He's looking us in the eye and saying, I will deliver on all these promises. Do you trust me? Do you believe me? Does God rule over the mess in your life? Or do you live in despair? That's really how we're going to see this. And Isaiah is prompting us in 28 to consider these thoughts. To think this. And and it may be a reprioritizing of our lives. To say, hey, these are searching questions that he's going to ask. And in 28, he's asking these searching questions. And probing us to see where our faith lies. And it's a simple message Trust God or are we trusting something else? And so when we trust God, hopefully this passage, hopefully 28 will either affirm you or it will make you see that there needs to be some change in your priorities. And hopefully it leads to a deeper trust in God and and which brings hope and which brings joy. And so here in in chapter 28, uh, Isaiah speaks in contrasts. So he uses three contrasts to be specific. He uses two kingdoms. He uses two words, and he uses two outcomes. And the reason he does this, there's a, there's a reason behind this, is because he wants us to decide. This is a contrast. It's one or the other. It's not a multitude of things that you can pick and choose from. It's one or the other. And so right here he's saying, do we trust God? Here's the thing. We don't need more Bible in this room, and we don't need to get more theology to know whether or, and decide whether we're going to trust God or not. We know enough in this room about God. To sit here and say, are we going to trust him? And so that's what we're trying to get to this morning. We know enough. Isaiah wants us to see here that God can be trusted. And God brings about the truth for the lies we tell ourselves. And confidence that replaces the fear in our lives. 
And so let's dive into this. The first point. Isaiah uses crowns to search us and, and see what we find our importance in or our significance in. What do we boast in? And so right here in chapter 28 at the very beginning, Isaiah is looking north to the northern kingdom. He's looking to Ephraim and specifically to the capital city of Samaria. And what he's seeing in Samaria is what it says here. It says it's the crown of the rich valley or the head of the rich valley. That's what Samaria looks like. So it's luxurious. It has vineyards. It has wealth. It has trees, lush gardens. It's where everything's basically going uh, on inside of Ephraim. And so he's looking to this northern kingdom and seeing that. And it's a visual representation of something that happens so often in our lives and so many times that this is exactly what's going on in Ephraim. This, we, we think we have everything. We have this wealth. But here, later on, he's looking at this and he's saying uh, that this easygoing, this laid back, this luxurious life is actually going to be where the Assyrian army comes and plunders. Because what made Ephraim so great, they turned into a drunken binge. There's, there's full of drunkenness. There's full of uh, debauchery. There's all kinds of things going on. And that's eventually going to be overtaken by the Assyrian army. And so Isaiah is pointing something that we see so often in our lives here. The kingdoms rise and fall. The egos come and go. Prosperity comes and goes. The, the pursuit of earthly possessions take over our lives. And they leave our cup empty. Yet we continually thirst after them. And so this city, this crown, like we've seen so many times already in Isaiah. If we think about Babylon, uh, Egypt. If we think about all the cities or these kingdoms that we've seen. They've all fallen and lay ruined. But there's actually going to be a kingdom. There's actually going to be a crown that stands above all the others. It's still standing today. And so this crown is not going to fade away. It will not betray us. It will not make us look foolish. And it's only built for love and for good. So look at verse 5 and 6. This is what it says in 5 and 6. And the day of the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. And a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. And the strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. This is huge. This is a triumph of grace. This is when God is our treasure more than the world. This is when we say we are good, that the last will be first, that the weak will be made strong, that the poor will be rich. This is where we say we're identifying with a Savior who will be rejected by the world. He will be rejected by the kingdoms, the, the mighty people, the, all these things. He will be rejected by those, but we will identify with his king. Isaiah says when we see things in this way, when we boast in Christ, we come in contact with reality. We're able to push past the world's deception of nothingness and, uh, and deceit. And we're able to see the prize, which is Jesus Christ and the crown of glory that, that brings the spirit of justice, strength, and empower. And so that's when good comes into the world is when we trust in God. But the thing is, if you think about it, God is the least exploited resource in our world. Think about that for a second. He is the least exploited resource in the world. We often treat him, and probably more times than not, we treat him as the last resort when he's actually the fountain that we should be drinking from. And here God is saying, I want to prove to you that I am trustworthy. I want to prove to you that nothing else will satisfy you. Nothing else will deliver you. Come to me and find rest. Come to me and find me as the bedrock for your faith. Verse 1, the fading flower. 
These words are written by the hand of God across every worldly status symbol. That you were not made for this world. You were made for glory beyond this world. And you are made for God and by God. And your crown of glory is God. He is offering himself to you. And so don't be too proud to be a child of God. Oftentimes we think that we are lowering ourselves to submit. That is the exact opposite. We are showing that we are a child of God. We are showing that we are a child of the one true God. And so this is just a glorious reality that, that God is showing us and Isaiah is showing us in these first six verses. But he doesn't stop there. Stop there. He, in verse 7, look at the transition in verse 7. These also. So now he's, he's been looking at the northern kingdom and now he turns it on himself. He turns it on the people, his people. He turns it on Jerusalem. And he looks at Jerusalem and he sees that his nation, his people, they have actually fallen into a sense of drunkenness. They've fallen into spiritual darkness. And it may very well be a literal drunkenness. Not just a metaphor, but real. And so it wasn't unfathomable for the northern kingdom because that's where the liberals laid. And that's where the liberals lie, uh, lived. But here, the southern kingdom, that's the Bible believing. That's the, that's the spirit of God is here. And yet these people are the ones that are also drunken with themselves. And so look how he sets it up in verse 8. He says, for all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Oh, he sees the priests and the prophets drunk. And he sees them, they're, they're drunk with their trendy wisdom. They're spewing both literally and metaphorically their foolishness, their disgusting philosophies, their cynicism. And they begin to mock Isaiah here. But look at verse 9 and 10. And if we're not careful, we, we, we can miss something here. Why is it that 9 and 10 are bookended by quotation marks? Right here, he is, Isaiah is quoting back to them exactly what they've said. Isaiah is quoting the priests and prophets. He's repeating back to them their response to his ministry message. And these priests and prophets have a couple of things that they're not agreeing with in his message. And so they're having a hard time following. First, they mock Isaiah's message to faith in God. They think it's childish and they think it's simple. But they have a point. They have a point here. Isaiah has a truly simple appeal. Trust God and find rest in Him. That's it. Verse 12. What does it say in verse 12? It says, this is rest. Give rest to the weary. That's all God is asking for is that you come and trust Him. But these priests and these prophets, they're chasing after false hopes. They're chasing after so much. And they're saying, this message is below me. This is not sophisticated. This is not some elevated message. This is not some... Uh, intellectual thought. We're too smart for this. This message is beneath me. Give me something challenging. But that's not what God offers you. God offers you a simple, simple message. And that is trust me. So then we come to verse 10. This is uh, great. And I often think about my childhood. And I'll explain that in a minute. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. It's kind of a tough verse to interpret. Um, and if you actually look back at the original Greek, it, it really is tough to interpret. It's really just two words that get repeated several times. And so basically what this is, is baby talk. This is blah, 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 blah. That is what they're saying to Isaiah, to his message. That is what they think, man, we're going to scorn him. We're going to get him right here. How many times, I can't remember how many times. I'm so glad that iPhones and camera phones weren't around when I was a kid. When I tried to baby talk my brothers 
And my sister thinking, this is really going to get him right here. I'm a baby talking. There's so many times, I loathe those times when I sit there and I think about, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, they're saying something. Oh, I'm a baby talking and I'm going to get them right here. Like, I'm about to nail them. And as soon as the words start to fly out, you're like, ooh, I wish I could reel those back in, but you can't. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They're just baby talking him. Oh, yeah, it's so rough to see here. This is the point where there's, they're just not comprehending the depth of Isaiah's ministry. And Isaiah does not have to worry about that because here's the beauty. God always defends his word. So here we have these priests and prophets. They're just, man, this message is too simple. They're going to sit there and they're going to baby talk and they're going to make fun of him. They're going to, they're going to mock him. But Isaiah doesn't have to worry in that moment. Isaiah knows that God will defend his word. Look at verse 11. For by the people of strange lips. Actually, the NIV does the best way of saying this. It says, very well then. So basically what they're saying here is that, okay, you're going to reject my message. I still have something to say to you. God always defends his word. And so he's still coming. Continue reading in in verse 12. It says, uh, excuse me, verse 11. For the, by the people of strange lip and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said. And so this is where God creates a contrast here. You see two things. So in this room, imagine in this room, I'm talking and I'm, I'm preaching from God's word, just like we are this morning. One of you is going to sit there and say, man, that is amazing. That was rich. That was, that was God's word. And I need it. I am longing for that. I need to hear more of this. Continue to like, come to that fountain and thirst and long for his word and hear the message of the Lord. But the next person sitting next to him can sit there and say, man, that was, that was terrible. That, I don't understand that. I want nothing to do with it. That word means nothing to me. Uh, I wish it brought something impressive. Um, why doesn't the Bible get on my level? It's the exact same message, but two interpretations totally. And so the question is, what are you hearing? What are you hearing this morning? Are you going to be the one that feasts on the word? Or are you going to be the one that says, God, bring me something impressive? I'm not getting anything out of this. And so when the Bible is opened, are you delighted or are you dismayed? Are you annoyed? You see, the offer is rest for those of us that hear the word. It's judgment for those of us that reject the word. There is a reason Paul quotes this when he's talking to the Corinthians. He reminds them that God has a clear message to the believing people. But to the unbelieving, immature people that should know better, he says this message is uncomprehensible. They won't understand it because they have rejected it. They should have known it. They were mature enough to know it. But they've shown their immaturity and they haven't listened. And so if God's word is not a delight to you, there's a reason that God's word is not a delight to you. You are too cynical to enjoy it. And you need to be humbled. You need to be humble before God and ask him to soften your heart. To hear his word. Because he can change your heart and he can change the message that you do hear. And so it's, it sounds harsh, but that's the reality of it. All he's asking for us to do is trust him. Trust him. And when we don't, we can't hear that word. And so there's something missing. There's something wrong. Verse 15. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and Sheol. We have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge. And in falsehood, we have taken shelter. Oh, sadly, the leaders here in Jerusalem refused and persisted in their message of uh, mocking Isaiah. 
and lack of faith. So when their faith was tested here, they, the threat of the Assyrian aggression was coming on them. They turned away from God and began to attempt to secure an alliance with Egypt in the south. God was offering them protection and God was saying, trust me, let me show you, let me care for you and let me be your ally in this battle. But God was not real in their hearts. And so they sought after a covenant with Egypt instead of God. And which leads Isaiah to say, you have made a covenant with death. Like he said here in verse 15. But the people, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We said we're making a, a covenant with Egypt. And Isaiah says, yeah, I know what you said. But let me tell you what it's actually leading to. You made a covenant with death. When you sought out Egypt instead of me, instead of God. You brought on death to yourself. They sealed their fate in that moment when they did that. But Isaiah in verse 15 and 17. Oh, yeah. God is our refuge. And and instead, they've made a refuge of lies. God is calling us to trust Him, yield to Him, and accept His truth and follow His timing. There's a lot more to salvation than being rescued from Assyria. There's a lot more that they had to gain when they went after Egypt. Our ultimate enemy is sin, and it can enslave us forever. And God is saying, take refuge in me, and don't take refuge in lies. Not in denial, not in the soothing of this world. The world offers you something that's temporary, where God offers you something that's eternal. There's a big difference in those things. You can face the realities of your guilt and everything that goes on in your world when you want to show, when you trust in Christ. You can face those, and you can beat them, you can defeat them. And so God cares for guilty sinners. God cares. And he says, trust me. So how do we take refuge in these lies? What, what does that mean? Think about it in this way. So my memory says, I did this. But my pride says, there's no way I could have done that. But eventually, our memory gives way to our pride. And so that's how we take refuge in lies. We say, man, that, my memory says, yeah, I, I did that. Yeah, I, I, I sinned. But then my memory, or my, faith, or my pride says, there's no way I could have done that. Like, no, that, that's not me. That doesn't sound like me. And that's how we take refuge in lies. We tell ourselves lies. Verse 16 is the opposite picture of this. Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So the opposite of scurrying around the opposite of telling lies and seeking that in refuge, refuge in lies, is not being in haste. This precious cornerstone, this sure foundation, this whole thing is built on Jesus Christ. This whole thing is built on this precious cornerstone, trusting in Jesus Christ. Not only do you have a foundation, but this faith in Christ can stand up to anything. Because we know we are more than conquerors through him. We have talked about it before, but we're actually fighting from victory. We're not in this battle thinking, man, are we going to win? Like, hey, it's, it's not looking good. We know that we have a sure outcome when we trust in God. We don't have to run to Egypt. We don't have to run to our vices. We don't have to thirst for our idols because we have a foundation for which we stand and which we need. It isn't just a little bit of Jesus and, hey, let me sprinkle some of this in. Let me sprinkle some of that and we have this perfect recipe. No, there's only one ingredient in this recipe and it's Jesus Christ. We have to trust in Him. He feeds the hungry, calms the storms. He's healed the sick. He's silenced de- demons. And He's conquered sin and death. Take it all to Him and find rest. 
Take it all to him. Not just a little bit, all of it. Our self-reliance and self-trust never, never works out for us. It only complicates our life. Verse 20 is a prime example of this. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Uh, I think about like waking up in the middle of the night, and I'm on a bed that's way too short, and I'm freezing cold, and I can't find a cover that fits me. Right, talk about an angry animal in the middle of the night. You will find that if you walked into that room with me. Like, that's what this is. This is, oh, this is just an angry, miserable person. It's a miserable night. And so receive God's word with faith. That's it. We don't have to be geniuses to figure out this message. It's pretty simple to us. Trust God or don't. There's no great mystery that we have to search for for the rest of our lives to find the answer. We're not on this great conquest to find this hidden treasure. He has revealed it to us in his word. He is sitting here saying, trust me and trust me alone. And so Isaiah concludes with two encouragements to end this. Can we trust God and his dealings with us? And so we've seen this progression of these two crowns. One's going to stand forever and one's not. We've seen one word that's going to stand and that's trust me, trust God. And here, this is just the final. This is beautiful. Verses 23 through 29. I'm not a farmer, by the way, but hopefully we can interpret this pretty well. So 23, 23 through 29, two outcomes here. He looks at the peasant farmer, this humble man, and he's smart enough to know that the upheaval, upheaval, upheaval of plowing is only temporary. So he's looking at his, his garden, and he's sitting there. And he's like, man, this... This upheaval that I'm going through of plowing this land day after day is only temporary because he knows what? He's going to have to plant at some point. So he gets a break from that. Isaiah wonders, how does the farmer know this? Because God is taught him. Verse 26 says that. Therefore, the point is, God must be smart enough to know the endless upheaval of our destruction in our lives would be fruitless. That This is temporary. So God deals with us in that. Is the heavy plowing, does God heavy plow with us sometimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is his treatment of us rough sometimes? Yes. There's consequences for our sin. There's consequences for the evil in our lives. But, but that doesn't continue. He stops it because he's only plowing to bring about new life. He's only plowing to bring us richness in our lives. He plows us so that we can see his fullness, so we can see his beauty, his glory. It's only temporary. It's rough, but it's temporary. This is the assurance we have. God has a life-enriching message, not a depleting purpose. So let's yield to him. 27 through 29, Isaiah looks at the farmer again. And he notices how he's handling his crops. One is different, and so the treatment is different. He deals with the cumin differently than he deals with the dill. And so this is continue over and over. And again, Isaiah wonders, how does he know this? Well, God's taught him. And, over, and so over-treating can happen if the farmer hasn't figured this out. But he has. And so God has taught him how to farm. God himself is smart enough to know how the farmer worked. God enough is smart enough to... Uh, he knows the right way to deal with you and me. It's different. If you're the dill and I'm the cumin, he deals with us differently. But that's the beauty of it. He knows you. He formed you. He knitted you. And so he knows exactly where to press in. He knows exactly how to deal with you. This isn't some distant being that we never have contact with. This isn't somebody that we can't pray to and he's not going to listen. This is God that is intimate with you, that knows you, and he knows exactly how to deal with you. 
That's the beauty of this picture. Not only is God saying, trust me, but he's up in it with us. He knows exactly how to deal with you and me. And so we have to trust in that. And so this is a pretty simple message. It's, it's not one where I have this elegant like ending and closing. It's really just a simple message of, do you trust God or do you not? And do you have to realign your life? And that's the beauty of today. We're coming to a feast just now. And we're about to come to a feast of the Lord's Supper. We have the option to say, God, I am trusting you. I'm going to take this bread. I'm going to take this blood. And it's going to be all you. Less of me and more of you. That's the simple message that we have here.